ask that you join me in the book of Esther as we conclude our series. As you know, with every good grand finale, it takes at least two hours to finish a story. So my apologies to your lunch reservations. I'm only partially joking. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of what Christ did on the cross. Lord, we see the, the Trinitarian nature of Jesus' death on the cross. God sending the Son, Christ giving up of himself, and in the Spirit uh, enabling Christ to do the things that he did. Lord, we, we humbly come before the triune God and, and are thankful for who you are. Lord, I, I want to lift up the churches in um, Sierra Vista. Father, we, we pray for Christ Community Church as they are uh, preaching this morning, and I pray for Pastor Jay as he brings the word of the living God. I believe they are still in the Gospel of John. So, Father, I pray uh, that you would encourage him to be able to edify the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, Lord, help him to proclaim Christ and him crucified. Uh, Lord, we pray for us this morning as we study your word, as we finish out this wonderful book of Esther, and we see how you give victory to your people. Lord, we ask that we would be able to put aside the things of the world so we can focus on heavenly realities this morning. God, I ask that you would enable me to preach your word in an acceptable manner. Uh, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us know this morning. Lord, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Man, I'm still thinking about Barney's message. Whew, that was so good. I doubt there's anyone in this room that would claim that God does not take care of his people. If you are, it's okay. I'm not chastising you. I think most of us have Romans 8, 28 through 29 marked in our Bibles. Romans 8, 28 through 29 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Oh, that was good. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And maybe you've studied the words of Jesus, the cure for anxiety, Luke 12, 22 through 34. Let me read this to you. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, or what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Don't, they don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment of his lifespan by worrying? Can any of you keep from getting COVID by worrying? That was my paraphrase. If then you are not able to do even a little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They grow. They don't worry or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat 
and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. So that's another word, forgive. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you know these things. You've memorized these things. You've written them in your journaling Bible and put little cool flowers and rainbows next to them. Right? You, you, you've taken it in. But for some of you, there may be some lingering doubts or questions. Is this true? Is this true about me? That's the heavy one, right? Is this true about me? Does God care for me? The answer to that question is seen in the passage that Ryan read to us this morning, Revelation 7, 9 through 17. But I think Revelation 17 highlights the whole thing. Revelation 7, 7:17 says this, For the Lamb, we saw what the Lamb did on the cross, who is at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of, water, of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that an amazing promise? God gives victory to his people, mostly in the next life. So for those of you who are carrying a heavy weight, maybe you're experiencing oppression. Maybe you have a relative who is aggressive. Maybe you are suffering some illness or some sickness. Maybe you have family members who are unbelievers and are tormenting you. Maybe you're struggling with forms of anxiety and worry. Maybe depression. Maybe you're tired and weary. Maybe you're looking at your dwindling bank account in a recession. Fears without and fears within. I want you to take heart. Your Savior knows you. He knows you are weak and needy. He will bring you out on the other side in victory. Christ has already crossed the finish line for us. He has already won the battle, and because of this, you can have hope if you only trust him. Rest in him by faith today. Call out to him in your weakness, because you're going to experience trials and tribulations in this life. That's a promise. Difficult things are going to happen to you, but there is an ultimate victory, a marriage supper of the Lamb, a new resurrection meal. So as we conclude Esther today, God's word reminds us that God gives his people victory for his own glory. And we have two conflicting commands. If you remember anything about the last several weeks of Esther, there are two edicts that have gone out. One, on this day, you are allowed to go and kill every Jew in the land and the whole provinces. The second edict comes out a little bit later. Imagine being a Jew. You'd be a little bit like, what is happening? Right? The second edict or, or executive order comes out and says, 
If you are a Jew, you're allowed to gather and defend yourself against anybody. And if anybody attacks you, you can go ahead and take their stuff. Take that flat screen TV. So we have two edicts that have come out. How, is, how are they going to be resolved? And that's what we're going to see this morning. And, and what's so interesting about this passage, if I just may do a side note here, is up until this moment, it's been like a lot of drama. Like we see Esther and we see Mordecai and we see Haman, all these characters. And then these last two chapters are almost just like a commentary of what happened. And I think it's interesting. I'm not going to tell you why I think it's interesting. Just know it's interesting. So what will these two conflicting executive orders do? Well, I want us to be encouraged as we read about this, that God looks out for the welfare of his people. Everything we go through is with the ultimate point of God's glory, and God being glorified is most good for us. God being God is a good thing. Because if we were God, we'd mess it up. So we first see victory for the Jews. So here's the tension. The two edicts, will God's people be delivered? Now, if I was writing this story, I probably wouldn't include 9 and 10 because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. The Jews are saved, right? Who else would be writing this book? But I think it's important to note that the reason he includes this is because the reality is we don't know if the Jews are going to be saved. Even at the moment at the end of Esther, they were saved in this instance, but will they be saved ever since then? So we have this story. And historically, we've seen attacks on the Jews, haven't we? Um, you have the risk of extermination, which is a common theme in the Old Testament. In my daily Bible, and if you remember anything about the book of Daniel, you know that there are some threats to the existence of Daniel and his, uh, his friends. We have the Babylonians attempting to destroy worship of the one true God. Then you have the Persians come along and try to get uh, Daniel to be killed because he prays. Sometimes I think the threat of death is because of jealousy, or it's either due to position or power. Uh, many times it's because the Jews were considered a threat to the functioning of society in the lands in which they were exiled. How often was the, the crime against them that they worship one god which will make the other gods angry? Very common theme. Threats to the Jewish people are not new. And then we see the pattern played out on Christians starting in the New Testament. And, and in fact, in early church history, Christians were persecuted by the Romans. In particular, Nero and, and Domitian were, were the, some of the cruelest emperors. So our passage reminds us that God delivers his people. Israel's greatest celebrations are always pointed to God and his deliverance of them. So let's first see how the Jews were united. Look at verse 1 through 4. In chapter 9, it says, The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them. Just the opposite had happened. Another grand reversal. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, and I say that five times fast, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every 
nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exer exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. We see that the Jews' enemies were put to shame. The passage says the king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them. Just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who had hated them. In fact, they were even supported by the local leaders. The governors and the satraps and all those in their area actually helped the Jews defend themselves. The local leaders were influenced by Mordecai and Esther's positions in the royal court. Man, Mordecai had really come into, uh, into prominence in the kingdom, hasn't he? He really been set up to a position. Now, I want to highlight something that I found very interesting. Go ahead and take a look at verse 2. At the very end of verse 2, you see this phrase, Fear of them fell on every nationality. Does that strike you as an important comment by the writer? I'll let you keep looking. Some people are still researching it on their phones. Okay. Deuteronomy 28.10 brings us into a really important connection here. So if you look at Deuteronomy 28, Moses is going over the covenant. Moses is, is referring referring to this covenant that God had made, the blessings and the curses of the Israelite people. And he says, you need to do these things, follow these laws. And I don't want to get into the details of the covenant right now, but essentially they had to obey these commands. And then when you get to verse 10 of 28, it says, then all the people of the earth see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. In the Hebrew it's will stand in fear of you. The people of the world will be afraid of the covenant people of God. So if you are a Jew and you're listening to the book of Esther or you're reading the book of Esther and you see this little comment here fear of them fell on every nationality, what would you interpret that to mean? That God's covenant favor is being restored to the people. That God's covenant people are beginning to fall back into favor with God. Because remember, a lot of curses would fall on them. In fact, God said that he would remove his hand of protection and they would be afraid of their enemies. But now we see the opposite happening. So remember, the Jews have been home. Many of the Jews were allowed to return to Israel uh, at the time of the Persian uh, conquest. And so many Jews are living at home, but we don't see covenantal favor applied to them yet. But here in Esther, we see. So how encouraging would that be for those who belong to a covenant to see that this blessing has returned? And then 5 through 17 shows us how the enemies 
were destroyed by the Jews, which is another aspect of the covenantal promises. Verse 5, the Jews put all their enemies to the sword. I'm back in Esther chapter 9, by the way, in case you didn't get what I was saying there, sorry. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Now, this is pretty cool here, including Harsh, Handatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Horatha, Adelia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vezetha. They killed those, those, these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. These were some well-known names at the time. Their enemies had some, some names, which were hard to say. I'm not going to say them again. But they had some names, and people knew them. The fact that he included this in the passage means that people knew that these were well-known enemies of the Jewish people. And do you remember something about Haman? Remember what he was bragging about when he first met with his wife and his friends? How many sons he had. Once again, the irony of the situation returns. And so the well-known enemies of the Jews were killed, the ten sons of Haman that, was, that Haman was bragging about. Now, I want to add this interesting side note. I'm doing a lot of side notes here, so I hope you can keep this in context. Maybe do like a mind map with all these little circles, and hopefully we can draw connections to them. But it says here that they did not seize any plunder. You see that two times in our passage this morning, we're going to see, well, actually three times, but we're going to see that they did not seize any plunder. They did not seek material gain from the situation. Do you remember in Joshua what happened to the Israelites when they decided to, to loot Jericho? One man in particular who wanted to, to steal some of the extra clothing, instead of taking Jericho and putting it to the sword and dedicating it to the Lord as God had commanded, one man took from Jericho and buried it and hid it under his tent. I had a whole sermon, if you ever get bored, go back and look. But it was, what are you hiding under your tent? right? And it was about the wickedness of taking something that belongs to God and keeping it for yourself. They did not make that mistake in this passage. God gave them the victory, and they trusted in him to provide the spoils. They no longer sought their own gain, which is an interesting note here. But then the second thing we see is that there's a victory celebration. All this, all this fighting led to a victory celebration. And our passage explains some details of the festival of Purim. So let's look at 18 through 32. Time out. Did I miss some of our passages here? Yes, I did. Let's read 11. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. So now the king gets a, a, a battle report about what's going on, the riot that happened, and how many people have died. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. 
man, Esther still has the king's favor, even though there's a riot that kills over 500 people in his own province. Esther answered, if it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the body of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. Man, more irony added upon more irony. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So the law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. So remember early on in the book of Esther, there was a lot of feasting and rejoicing going on, but it was very much debauchery, right, self-seeking. But here we have victory, which is celebrated. So once again, we have a grand reversal. We have the irony. We have this continued repetition of God reversing the fortunes of his people. He has providentially orchestrated this event for the good of his people. And man, we've really pointed out a lot about how the cross and Christ symbolize or is, um, is the substance of the shadow that we're seeing in this passage. And what we see is that the cross leaves a big shadow in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is continually pointing to the substance that is Christ, as Colossians tells us. And so what we see here is that the people of Israel, or the Jewish people, were able to defend themselves, and they did so in such a way that they were able to annihilate a lot of their enemies. People who had been scheming against them for many, many years are put to the sword. God is able to protect them. And in fact, they, were, they understood that this was an act of God because they did not seek their own gain from it. They did not seek to plunder it. And what we see is this interesting aspect of reversals with the ten sons being hung on the gallows. And then the Jews are assembling all these days. And we're going to bring these days together here in a minute. But you have the 13th day, the 14th day, the 12th day. We have all these Adars and these months and all that. Understand there's a reason for this. So all of this victory led to a celebration, a feast. So 18 through 32, the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. Verse 19, this explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in the king, in all of King Ahasuerus's provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They would, they were, they were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and sending of gifts to one another and the poor. <clears throat> this feast is now established, and it's going to be passed on to each generation. Look at verse twenty-three. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun 
as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadetha the Agiite, and the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the purr, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. So remember Haman's plan. He sat there with his witch doctors or his, his advisors and uh, cast lots. And every month of the, of the year, they went over and they just cast lots to find out what day are we going to annihilate the Jews, right? In fact, he's seeking the favor of the gods, right? Because they believe that the gods determine by the lot. What we see is that God determined the day using the purr, the lot, and it became the day of Purim. Very interesting. Verse 25, but when the matter was brought, so this is a summary, by the way, was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, literally, and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pure, per, because of all the instructions of this letter, as well as what had, they had witnessed and what had happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants. So we have the feast that was established, it's passed down through every generation. Now, if I was writing this, who do you think I would put into the story, into the narrative? Whose name is missing from this victory celebration? God, right? God's name is missing. If you were the, the writer, if you were a Jewish writer, a good Jew, you would not fail to mention God in this passage because it's God who gives them the victory. But throughout all of Esther, this author is intentionally leaving it out. Why would he do that, do you think? What would be the purpose of not placing God's name in a Jewish scripture passage? It's to highlight it. How many of you have ever been to like a, a class where they have fill in the blanks? What are in the blanks? Filler words like and, the, but? No, of course not. It's the nouns or the verbs, the things that you actually need to know for your studies. And that's what this author does. He leaves it intentionally open in order to highlight God's work here. Now, of course, we see Esther. She confirms the custom in 29 through 32. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote the second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation, 
So Esther's command confirmed the customs of Purim, which were written into that record. So do you see the difference? When the first edict came out, there was fasting and lamentation. When the second edict came, there was rejoicing and celebration. And so the, the, the festival of Purim is still practiced by the Jews today. They still practice this. In fact, they just, a lot of times they give gifts to one another. It's almost become, dare I say, like a Christmas event for them. And so we also have short memories, don't we? Sometimes I tell my kids to do something, and they forget before they even get to the room that they're supposed to do it in. Does anybody else have that struggle with their family? Sometimes my wife tells me to get something from the grocery store. I hate to say it, that I forget completely before I even get in the vehicle. Right? And then I have to text her, and then she tells me like where the location of these things are, and it becomes this whole thing. Right? And she actually has to FaceTime me. This is embarrassing to talk about, so we're not going to continue. But we have short memories, don't we? We don't remember things. And in fact, we even forget the things of the Lord, don't we? What's the first thing we think about when we get up out of bed in the morning? How many of you get up rejoicing and celebrating the Lord? Or do you start groaning because your body aches? Because you did too much work the other day and you forgot that how old you were, right? I know I look young, but I feel much, much older. And when I wake up, I'm, I'm aching. Instead of celebrating what God has given me, I'm in pain. Or how many of us, when uh, our children do something, something disobedient, we fail to thank the Lord that we even have children? Because there are many that don't have that gift. And so we see this that we have short memories just like the Israelites. So Esther and Mordecai, they wrote down a time to remember and celebrate and to make it a regular aspect of Jewish life. Now there's something about a regular habit that keeps us mindful of what is important to us. Isn't there? When I was growing up, my mom used to make me brush my teeth every morning when I got out of bed. And that habit, I have to say, has continued even to this day, right? Because it is important to me, uh, or Bible reading times, or whatever you have. We have habits that help us remember what is important. And we as Christians have a time of remembrance. In fact, we celebrate it every single week. Sunday worship. Because our memories are so bad, we need a weekly reminder. We don't need the yearly reminder of the Jews. We need the weekly reminder. I like how the older generations used to call Sunday the Lord's Day. It was the Lord's Day. It was a reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How Christ has defeated the grave, sin, and death. Christ has won the victory by giving himself. It's funny, a lot of times people will always come up to me and be like, oh, at, you know, Easter, that's like the Super Bowl for you pastors, right? And I always like to laugh and say, you know, I celebrate Easter every single Sunday because it, the Lord's Day is representative of the day he was risen from the grave, right? So we celebrate Sunday every single day. And I'm about to step on some toes here. That's why the Lord's Day, Sunday observance, is so important. I understand that there are exceptions. Joy has been unable to join us for a long time due to her health. 
We have people that have jobs that prevent regular Sunday attendance. Now, sometimes you can attend and not really be here, right? I've done that a lot in school. Many in the military, they have high deployment tempos. They cannot observe the Lord's Day. But this is dangerous to your soul. It allows you to forget the things that God has done. If you were not here this Sunday, you would have missed out on communion and that excellent message that Bonnie shared with us. You would have missed out on celebrating what Christ has given up for us. The reason, there's a reason God instituted a day of rest. I'm messing up my notes, I'm sorry. There's a reason he instituted a day of rest, and he reserved it for worshiping him alone. The Lord's Day is not a day of just free, do whatever we want to do. It's a day of rest for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. It shows the world that God is a priority on Sunday. I ask all of you to take a minute here to consider using your Sundays for worshiping God alone. Consider what that would look like. And the question is, do you fill it with needless activity and recreations? Are you making this a priority? Now, I'm not saying you don't kick back and watch the game. I'm not saying you don't kick back and enjoy uh, sports, what have you. But what I am saying is really consider what does it mean to worship the Lord on the day that he has dedicated? The question really is, what are your priorities? What is your priority? Is it to get out of church quick so you can have that, that meal with your friends? Is it, man, I can't wait to have a Sunday nap? Now, I just want to say, Sunday naps are a gift from the Lord. So, um, don't hear what I'm not saying. But we often fail in remembering what is important. Another regular celebration is the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in forgetfulness of me. No, do this in remembrance, right? Remembrance. We often fail in these, don't we? This is a common thing that we all fail in. I, I sometimes plan things on Sunday, not because they're not important, but because they're not as important as what is ultimately Philippians 3, 13 through 14 says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now I get it. There are physical reasons and acts of, of good will that need to be done on Sundays. I get it. So I'm not putting a law on your shoulders. But what I am saying is, just contemplate how you use Sunday. Think about this Lord's Day, and what does it mean to actually worship the Lord? Are you reaching forward to always remembering the one that won the victory for us? One of my favorite theologians, pastors, I don't know if you really call him a theologian, but John Newton. He wrote some wonderful hymns. He's well known for his conversion from the slave trade and just his wicked life. But one of the things he said is he makes it his goal to always be remembering Christ. And he laments the fact that he fails 
all the time. And I think that's the same for all of us. When someone cuts me off in traffic, typically I'm not thinking of my Savior, my Lord. When my wife gets snippy with me because I forgot to do something, am I remembering who Jesus is? Or am I remembering how my feelings got hurt? And so I'm thinking about myself again. So the question is, are you reaching toward the victory that the Lord has won for us? And finally, in chapter 10, just a few verses, we see victory for Mordecai. It's a very unusual addition to this book, but it closes the book of Esther, and we learn that Mordecai continued to serve the Jewish people. Now, I must be going really long because it is it's already almost 1130. So like I said, I apologize for your missing lunch because we're still going. Interesting, there's no archaeological records of Mordecai being second in command. Have you ever done some research into that? There's no, you know, the Persians took a lot of good records, right? The law, the Medes, and Persians are really well known. Right, so they took a lot of records, but there's no archaeological records of Mordecai being second in command, which is ultimately not surprising, since not many kingdoms would want to record a Jewish prime minister. In fact, there's actually a strange gap in ancient Persian records of about seven years, um, and then after Mordecai held the position, the records indicate that there was some other man holding it in 456 B.C., so there's an interesting gap in the Persian records of about seven years where there is no recording of who was second in command. That's a mystery. I guess we will never know the answer. But there is one tablet that records a man named Mardukaya as an official in the early years of Xerxes' reign. Very likely, I think, Mordecai. But chapter 10 gives us a brief look at this Mordecai. So we're going to read all of chapter 10, so buckle up your boots. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax through the land, throughout the land, even to the furthest shore, farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him have, not they, have they not been written in the book of historical events of the kings of the Media and the Persia. So here in chapter 10 it says it was recorded in the book. And then we just saw that there's a whole section missing from that book. Mordecai, the Jew, was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. In fact, because of God's care for them, we actually have descendants. So... As you read this, there's a couple historical cues that we need to just key in on really quickly. One, we have a, the king is enforcing um, forced labor or forced taxes, which is what, something we know from history that Xerxes was building all these building projects, and so he had to have laborers and he had to raise taxes. And so we see that here. And then, of course, alongside that decree, we have more news about Mordecai serving the king as the king's second in command. And Mordecai shows his character, and this is something that I think is important uh, because I think we have time for it, that Mordecai sets the example of what a representative of government, for government, should look like. So because we just had our primary season, a lot of you called me and asked me who do you need to vote for, 
um, or just, you know, how do we walk through what voting looks like? This here in our, in our passage this morning tells us what we need to look for. So let's compare. Okay, we're not going to do that. We're not going to compare the character of Mordecai with our elected representatives. Uh, but I think we should strive to hold our representatives to the standard of Mordecai. So the question is, what did Mordecai, what was he known for? At the very end of verse 3, it says he continued to pursue prosperity for his people and speak for the well-being of all his descendants. Are they speaking for the well-being of the people? Are our representatives looking out for people? Or are they speaking up about what is comfortable for them? Are they speaking up about uncomfortable or unpopular topics? Or are they changing their tune at every venue that they go and speak at? God needs servants today who will speak up when his people are in danger, or where there is injustice and corruption, and there's corruption that's rampant in society. That's the representatives that we need. So as you look at these people, and I know it can be confusing, and I know that they all say different things, and they have different actions and voting records. I know it's a lot, but ultimately we hold them to this standard. Are they looking out for the welfare of the people according to my biblical understanding of what is good? what is true, what is just, and what is moral. If they're doing that, then they're likely going to be a good candidate. But ultimately we see many of them are not. So this book closes with a picture of peace and prosperity for the Jews. God, of course, is not mentioned in this book. I think the author was very intentional because God's absence in the word does not mean that he is absent in the world. We saw previously that when God seems most absent, he is most present. God works carefully in history to accomplish redemptive reversals in the life of his people. There are few books of the Old Testament that are more relevant to a life in a society that is hostile, hostile to the gospel. I think Esther shows us a lot of what it looks like to live in exile to live in a world that is actually becoming hostile or is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we saw that God wins victory for his people. God uses instruments to accomplish his goal of saving a people for himself. This passage reminds us that God gives his people victory for his glory. The sign and banner for victory today is Jesus Christ. Christ has won the victory. When we are weary and heavy laden, when we fight against self and pride and fail time and time again, when we lash out at our spouse again after we've been already really diligent about humbling ourselves, we can look forward to the author and finisher or author and perfecter of our faith. And we have the strength to endure because Christ is the victory. That's the message of Esther. Father, as we finish such a powerful message on the book of Esther, Lord, I'm just humbled and awed by the scope that was covered in this book. Lord, we didn't even get to touch on every aspect 
that was in here. Lord, I pray that we would continue to be diligent in our studies as we approach the book of Acts next week, that we would be prepared to be challenged to what it looks like to live as believers in a hostile world. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this. Lord, we, uh, we have our, our biblical counseling training this afternoon. Uh, Father, four hours with 13 to, to 14 people coming to learn how to, to give wise counsel to, to their brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray for the elders and pastors that come to it. We pray for the, the lay people that come to it, that this would be a time of uh, refreshing and a joyous time of, of learning how to care for your people uh, with your word and primarily through your word. God, and we ask for your spirit to rest heavy upon us and guide us in all our things. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Lord, we, we, in, in just a minute, Lord, I, I just want to pray for our state as we've gone through this election cycle. Lord, we know that you are in control. We know that the candidates that were put forth uh, may not be the very best from among us, uh, but we pray for you, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name.